Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Michael Gill, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Edinburgh. His new book, A Philosophy of Beauty, Shaftesbury on Nature, Virtue, and Art, is just out from Princeton University Press. The third Earl of Shaftesbury was a troubled soul, negative, misanthropic, and deeply troubled by his negativity and misanthropy. In his book, Michael Gill shows how Shaftesbury's efforts to work on himself resulted in his becoming one of the first philosophers writing in English to develop an aesthetic theory. Shaftesbury conceived of beauty as order or harmony, exemplified by wild nature just as it is created by God, in sharp contrast to the prevailing 17th century European view that nature was sinful and needed to be altered for human purposes before it could be aesthetically valuable. Gill explains how Shaftesbury argued for seeing our lives as works of art and shows how he responded to critics who claimed that admiring beauty was something that only rich lords like himself could afford to do. Instead, Shaftesbury claimed, even the lowly mechanic is inherently invested in good craftsmanship and in making himself a good person. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Michael Gill. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation about uh, a philosophy of beauty, Shaftesbury on nature, virtue, and art, which is just just out from Princeton University Press. Uh, Before we get to talking about Shaftesbury and his philosophy of beauty, um, tell us a bit about yourself. I mean, your own philosophical background and your interests and how you came to write this book. Thanks. Well, I didn't get into philosophy by design. Uh, I knew enough about philosophy when I went to university because I had an older brother who was a philosophy major to take a couple courses, um, but I had no plans to become a philosophy major. The thing that got me into it really was that I hated to be bored in my classes. I hated to be in a class where the lectures just went on and on and I just found myself bored. And so I really chose classes almost entirely based on which ones I thought I wouldn't be bored in. And after a semester or two, I found myself taking more and more philosophy classes. Those were the ones that were least boring, that were most exciting. And it wasn't really a design to become a philosophy major, but somewhere around the beginning of my third year, I realized that's where it was headed, uh, which turned out to be fine by me. And I really gravitated um, especially to history of philosophy. I suppose at the time, we, my, my friends and I probably had a great deal of pride in taking courses and taking degrees that had the least practical application. I think things are very different now. Uh, but at the time, there was a certain amount of uh, a pride in being able to say you're taking something that has no practical application whatsoever. So philosophy fit that as well. And I I gravitated towards history of philosophy. And one of the main reasons for that was I found it so fascinating when I would be reading a historical text from hundreds or thousands of years ago, and someone would be talking about very obscure things or matters that seemed really antiquated. And then out would pop some insight that seemed to me like something someone would have said yesterday and that I would have found interesting. And the combination of these kind of alien, very historical 
systems, along with these insights that just seemed as human as today, fascinated me. I mean, for instance, when I was reading Aristotle, and Aristotle, especially if you're reading the Nicomachean Ethics, which is written, of course, as lecture notes, and it's hard to understand, and it seems like something quite old. And then you find him saying something about everybody wants to have a sense of humor. Everyone wants to be funny. And that just seems so true to me. And I just found it fascinating that someone writing so long ago with such different concerns could nonetheless be doing something that was so human. And the same thing with Kant, where you get this system and it's all very complex and it all seems very much in history mode. And then he pops out with something about friendship being this negotiation between love and respect, which just seemed so wise and spoke to people today. And so I, I loved that. I love the combination of those two things. And I was as interested in the old alien parts of it as I was in the familiar stuff. And the familiar stuff made me motivated to understand the alien stuff. Um, and the alien stuff made it kind of fascinating and different. And so I found history of philosophy just exciting to read and trying to figure out. And I really never wanted to give short shrift to either side of those. I never wanted to read historical texts entirely in terms of what's of interest to us. I wanted to understand them as they were written for the day. At the same time, I did want to take the nuggets, which in all of these great philosophers I found, and explain where they came from and how they spoke to us. So wanting to balance those two things was was fun and interesting. Uh, so that's what got me into philosophy and specifically in the history of philosophy. Shaftesbury is really a prime example of that. There's lots that he says that is so rooted in 1700 England. Uh, it's so rooted in the culture of the day and the politics of the day. And it really does seem like you're reading something historical. It doesn't seem like something anyone would write today. But then every now and again, he'll pop out with these insights that just seem as fresh as they could possibly be. For instance, he talks about humble brag. He doesn't use the term humble brag, but he identifies exactly that phenomenon that we're all familiar with today. And it's funny and it's interesting. And he does similar things where he might be talking about some religious disputes that are really specific to 1706 in London. And then he'll say something about how wonderful it is to be in nature and what it does for the spirit that sounds exactly like what someone today might say. And that that speaks to me. And so Shaftesbury is, is a prime example of that. And then as well, the surface of his text is really unusual in that he doesn't write straight philosophical texts. He writes uh, epistles. Uh, he has jokes. He has stories within stories within stories. He writes something that is very much like a philosophical novel. And then he writes entire uh, essays that are comments on his own work. And then he'll write essays about the comments on his own work. So it's almost as though you have footnotes and then footnotes to the footnotes. There's uh, this contemporary uh, recent novelist, David Foster Wallace, who has footnotes and then footnotes on his footnotes and digressions that turn into digressions of digressions. And I wouldn't say that Shaftesbury and David Foster Wallace are peas in a pod exactly, but the kind of self-consciousness, the kind of turning back on oneself that you find in David Foster Wallace or Stern, for instance, you get that in Shaftesbury. So it's, it's fascinating. It's hard sometimes to follow but that made it more exciting. So, so that drew me into Shaftesbury. And then I guess the final thing I'll say about something that drew me into Shaftesbury is as a person, uh, when you read his letters and you read his private diaries, he's, he's very negative. He's, he's a kind of depressive person in a lot of ways, and he's an angry person in a lot of ways, but he believed that he should be more positive. He thought, he really should learn how to love the world and love other people and that the negativity that he found in himself was something that he was using philosophy to try to overcome and become more positive about the universe, about people, about himself. 
And that combination of this self-loathing and yet this attempt to not be, uh, I found very interesting as well. So there were a lot of reasons that he ended up being someone that I really liked spending time with for a number of years while I was writing this book. Right. Well, that's that's very, very helpful because, you know, a lot the book itself really does um, express this, you know, both the alien aspects of Shaftesbury and then the more, you know, familiar stuff that we that, you know, we would recognize as as a concern of of today. Right. And you mentioned the humble brag bit. Um, and there's many other examples which we can get to. Um, uh, tell us about about Shaftesbury himself. I mean, he's th- that title. That's a title. I mean, Earl of Shaftesbury. Um, it's not his name. Um, but uh, it's what we know him by. Um, so t- tell us a bit about Shaftesbury and then how he was received in his time. Yeah, so you're right. His name is Anthony Ashley Cooper. Uh, he's the, the third Earl of Shaftesbury. If you spend any time in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, there's the Ashley River and the Cooper River and that's not a coincidence because his family uh, were in charge of the Carolinas when they were begun. Uh, so that's his, his actual name. And he, he was called Anthony um, or Ashley. Uh, but he is the third Earl of Shaftesbury. His dates are 1671 to 1713. And the historically really significant figure in his early life was his grandfather, who was the first Earl of Shaftesbury, who was also Anthony Ashley Cooper, who was in his day in the 1660s and 1670s, probably the most powerful politician, or at least one of the most powerful politicians um, in uh, Great Britain, and was a founder of the Whig Party and was instrumental in trying to exclude uh, the Stuarts from uh, the throne and who eventually laid the groundwork for the Glorious Revolution. Although his grandfather in the end of his life was arrested and died in disgrace. Later, he seems to have been vindicated by the Glorious Revolution. But during Shaftesbury's early childhood, he admired, uh, he loved his grandfather, but his grandfather was excoriated by many people in the country and, and eventually put into prison. He was released, but, but he died shortly thereafter. So his grandfather is this huge figure politically and also in Shaftesbury's own life. One of the most obviously philosophical results of this or implications of this is that uh, the first Earl's right-hand man was a person named John Locke. And John Locke was Shaftesbury's most trusted assistant and was attached to the Shaftesbury household throughout his life. And his grandfather put Locke in charge of Shaftesbury's education. Locke didn't teach Shaftesbury himself, but he found tutors for Shaftesbury. And Shaftesbury grew up uh, with a very close relationship with Locke, and they remained very close right to the end of Locke's life. Uh, They uh, knew each other extremely well. They were almost parts of the same family. Locke was almost like an uncle in his life. So Shaftesbury had this philosophical influence, obviously, from a a very early age. I mean, basically, from before he was born almost, and that Locke actually arranged for the marriage that led to Shaftesbury's birth. Um, Shaftesbury himself was very active in politics when he was young. He was a member of parliament, and then he was a very active member of the Whig party when he became Earl, but he was also very sickly. Uh, Probably he had asthma or some sort of respiratory disease, and the time he spent in London always made him sick, and he eventually had to withdraw from his active political life, at least partly because of health reasons. Um, And he had to move away from London because he couldn't stand the smoke there. And he ended up moving more into philosophy, writing more philosophy, at least partly as a result of that. Sometimes I wonder whether his health was a very convenient excuse for him to move away from the politics into philosophy and that he wanted to do that anyway. 
it's hard to know what would have happened if he'd been healthy, but it actually suited his personality, I think, better to be a philosopher and a writer than a politician. But he did feel a great deal of obligation to be involved in politics. That was the family business. And he really wanted to vindicate his grandfather. And so he did do that early in his life, but he withdrew later. Um, and what he ended up doing between 1699 and 1709 is writing five influential philosophical works that were uh, surprisingly popular with the uh, book buying public. And then in 1709, 1710, he decided to put them all together into one book. So the characteristics of men, manners, opinions, and times is thought of as one book, but it's actually his bringing together of all the other things that he wrote. Why, why were these surprisingly popular? Um, I guess surprising to us that someone writing about these sorts of things would be so popular. Maybe it wouldn't have been so surprising at the time. I think we would be surprised if someone writing about the philosophical issues that he addressed would become one of the most famous men of letters of his time. But when you see the way he wrote and you see how he tried to address his contemporaries, it's maybe not as surprising uh, in the context of its time. Okay. Um, okay. So, so, so his philosophy of beauty, I mean, one of the strongest, I mean, if not the strongest thread that kind of goes through at least the early chapters of the book is the, um, is his, uh, his religious and moral, um, you know, the, the religious slash moral lens at which, through which he looks at beauty and, and through which he um, conceptualizes beauty. Um, so could you, could you say a bit about this, you know, sort of religious motivation and, and you know, that, that, that way of constraining his thought, I should say, about, about beauty? Yeah, he, the book was very influential for those reasons. It was very influential for a number of reasons. Uh, it certainly had a massive impact on views of religion and the Bible and miracles. Um, it also had a massive impact on moral philosophy, especially with regard to the moral sense and romanticism. But certainly the religious concerns were some of his personally most motivating features. Early in his life, or at least when he was in his 20s and he was beginning to write, he very much believed that he should be feeling great love for God. He should be feeling great love for the world. He should feel gratitude. And he introspected and he didn't feel it. He found that he was a very um, unhappy person and that he didn't find in himself uh, the love for God that he thought he should, he thought was the right thing to feel. And beauty, especially the beauty of nature, was his solution to that in a way, in that he came to develop a view of how nature was beautiful. And he saw nature as God's artifact. And by seeing nature as God's artifact and coming to love the beauty of nature, he felt that he could come to love God. And he worked on himself to make himself feel that uh, because he thought it was the right thing to do. But also, I think he, he definitely did have just an inherent love of nature. And what he convinced himself of and then wrote in his book is how love of the beauty of nature is something that shows how beautiful God is and leads to love of God. Okay. So he sort of, yeah. Um, um, so, um, well, this is, I mean, one of the, one of the things that you contrast this is with the idea that beauty was n that nature, sorry, was, was not something to be uh, appreciated in some way, unless it was somehow, quote unquote, improved 
by by man, right, or by by humans in some way. Um, so so maybe you can maybe you can explain. You know, it's it's from what I understand, it, one of the reasons why we why he resonates today to the extent that he does. Um, is this contrast with the attitude towards nature that he was, uh, that his work responded to, even if it was really more personal reasons that he developed it? Yes, that's true. So there are lots of strands in 17th century uh, Britain and Europe about nature, but certainly a very prominent strand is just as you described, is a strand that looks at wild nature, at wildness, with uh, mistrust or disdain. An example of this can be uh, the gardens of the 17th century versus the gardens of the 18th century. And I think uh, Shaftesbury's work really helps illustrate the change in gardening between the 17th century and the 18th century. So in the 17th century, the model for a garden is the formal garden, which is a total uh, changing of wildness into something that's geometric, into something that is very humanly forced. Whereas in the 18th century, you begin to have the English garden and something that looks more like Nature is more like something you might see when you're out in the woods. And Shaftesbury is really instrumental in affecting that change, or at least is illustrative of that change. And the thinkers who I put him in contact with from the late 17th century are Thomas Burnett and Locke on property. So Thomas Burnett is a fascinating figure, uh, and his work is really interesting and fun to read and strange. Uh, Thomas Burnett had this idea that we couldn't explain Noah's flood unless we supposed that at the time of the flood, the earth was entirely round and perfectly circular like an egg and that the surface was entirely smooth, and that what happened during the flood was that the surface of the earth cracked and the waters from underneath the surface rose and all of the mountains and valleys and every feature of the earth that we see that isn't perfectly flat, perfectly smooth, is a result of the sin that led to Noah's flood. And so the idea here is, Everything we see that's mountainous um, and gorges and abysses, these are all problems. These are all the result of something we've done wrong. Yeah. And then, and then Locke has a different point that Shaftesbury goes after, which is his view of property, which is that turning land into agriculture makes it into the property of a person. And that's something that God wants us to do because wild land isn't actually that useful to humans. And the word that Locke often uses for that is that it's a waste. It's just a wasteland. It's, it doesn't do any good for humans. What does good for humans is when we change wild nature into something that serves us. And the word that Burnett uses for wild nature um, often is... Uh, that it's a ruin. It's all ruin. So you have these thinkers in the 17th century, such as Locke and Burnett, who see wild nature as either wasteful or wasteland or ruin or a result of sin or ugly or grotesque. And there's a great deal of fear of this. And there's a great deal of, of uh, contempt for uh, the idea of wildness. It's not something that's a good thing. That's something we want to get Past. And that's why you have these gardens that are complete reversals of what's wild, where everything is formal. And Shaftesbury argues against that. Shaftesbury argues that wild nature is actually the most beautiful thing that we're ever going to encounter. And that's fascinating. Uh, and it very much, I think, anticipates the view of 
positive aesthetics that we find today, um, the idea that everything that's natural is beautiful. I think that's something that Shaftesbury did believe. And it gets into what his particular view of beauty is and why nature had that which uh, we can discuss. Yeah, so that that's yeah, obviously. So why why would that be the most beautiful? Right. It's because his conception of beauty is of harmony or order or balance where lots of disparate things all are brought into a perfect uh, system. So he uses the word system a lot. And the more complex the system, the more different things are brought into greater harmony, the more beautiful it is. So there are very simple beauties of very, very simple systems, which are beautiful, but they're not that beautiful. But then as things get more complex and you have more and more pieces that are more and more different, but they all fit together more and more perfectly, they become more and more and more beautiful. Well, and what, well, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Oh, so, well, I, I mean, continue, but, but as you go, I mean, it would seem like the, the tended garden, the tended field would be a, a better example of that than wild nature. Yeah. So he addresses this directly. He actually speaks quite a bit about those gardens. And he says, that's a very superficial, it's, it's, it's a superficial kind of order. There is order there. I mean, he doesn't deny it. It's not as though he thinks those are grotesque, ugly places. But what he thinks is that wild nature, when you understand it, you realize that its order is so much more complex than the formal garden. So he speaks, he, he contrasts very explicitly the very limited kind of basic order of a formal garden versus what happens when you understand an ecosystem. Now, he doesn't use the word ecosystem, but he uses the word system. And I think if he had the word ecosystem, he would have used it because that's what he's talking about. The way all the different species fit together to create this balance. So he has this idea that all of the different plants and animals uh, come together in this balance to keep an ecosystem in order. And that requires understanding. The problem with people like Burnett and Locke is they don't understand that they didn't look into that. But when you look into it, you find that the order there is so much richer, so much more complex than the order of a formal garden. It's also ordered temporally and not just atemporally. It's ordered over time the way these things develop. And so this is a view that I think really is extremely similar to a contemporary view um, in environmental aesthetics, uh, the idea of a cognitively rich appreciation of the beauty of nature, cognitively rich in that it's not something that you're going to get without knowing a fair amount about how things work. I mean, you can look at a sunset and that might be beautiful, but if you look at the way trees and animals working together in a forest, you might not see the beauty. But then when you learn more about it, you learn more about how these species interact, you learn more about the various connections between them, then you begin to see the systematic nature of it all, the way it all fits together, and then you find it beautiful. So it's cognitively loaded, it's cognitively rich in that you actually need to learn about these things in order to see the beauty. But it's also something that he thinks everything in nature eventually has. And that's this notion of in contemporary environmental aesthetics called positive aesthetics, which is anything natural is beautiful. Well, it, it certainly takes, takes you know, man out of the equation um, and it sort of gives a direct, you know, what's beautiful is what, what God likes in some sense directly kind of designs um, uh, as opposed to man sort of being a, a, a middle term in, in creating beauty. And I'm just wondering, I mean, given, I mean, he is responding to this idea that of, you know, of nature, uh, uh, of the wildness, you know, somehow being a reflection of man's sin. So how does, how exactly does he eliminate man from the equation? 
Well, I don't know if he eliminates man entirely in that, um, as we'll probably get to, he has a lot to say about art. And I think he does love art. So uh, man-made beauty is also important to him. It's not as though he thinks it's, um, that, that isn't really beautiful, but he does think it's probably a lower kind of beauty. And specifically when he compares gardens, formal gardens to wildness, there he is pretty clear that altering a wild ecosystem to make it look like something that appeals to a human eye initially is, is, a, is a, a degradation. Uh, that's a falling away. And with regard to nature itself, I think he's, he's pretty clear about that. With regard to art, then humans do have a role to play there. But I should say something um, more about this garden and nature point, because what I've just described is what his characters say in his most significant work, which is the moralist. That's probably uh, the, 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 his, his magnum opus in the characteristics. He himself was very active in running his own estate, and he himself was very active in gardens. And it's not clear that he himself didn't sometimes involve himself in some kind of semi-formal gardens. So there actually is a literature in the history of garden scholarship about what Shaftesbury himself did in his own gardens. And there's been research on trying to figure out what gardens he actually designed or had built. So what I'm describing is what's in the text. There's some disagreement about what he himself actually did on his own estates. Mm, okay. So you mentioned, you mentioned painting. So that's another, I mean, he does, he takes his, you know, concept of, of beauty as, you know, order, complexity, you know, you described it much better than I would. Um, uh, and he applies it also to art, right? Um, so can you, can you say a bit about, about his view of the beauty of art? Yeah. He believes that beauty in every sense and every facet and every aspect, wherever it occurs, is basically one property which is order, harmony, symmetry, proportion, um, system. And I actually think this is probably one of the points that we really need to question him on. So he thinks we're going to be able to find the same kind of systematic coherence and order in beautiful paintings and beautiful literature and beautiful lives for that matter that we find in an ecosystem. And before I get to the, the painting, I'll say, I'm not sure he's really right about that. I think it's probably more likely to my mind that there's at best a family resemblance between what he calls the harmony of painting and the harmony in nature rather than one single property that we can find all these places. So officially in painting, what makes a painting beautiful and what makes a story beautiful and a poem beautiful, anything beautiful, is order and harmony, just as we find in an ecosystem where lots of disparate things all pull together to create one system. Uh, but my guess is it's not going to work out that well. Uh, Isaiah Berlin, has this essay, the, the Hedgehog and the Fox, in which the fox knows lots of things, but the hedgehog knows only one thing, but it's very important. And in that essay, what he says is that Tolstoy was a fox who thought he should be a hedgehog, or who wanted to be a hedgehog, that Tolstoy was someone who had all of these different ideas about all these different things, but thought that what would really be the right thing is if he just had one big idea about everything. And I kind of think something is similar about Shaftesbury. I think that 
he really wants to be a hedgehog. He wants to say, there's just this one concept, beauty, and it applies everywhere. And it's one big system of everything. And I think when you read him, there's a lot more that's like a fox. I think he's got a lot more insights into particular things that don't fit together quite as well as maybe he thought they did. Um, that's a preface. But with regard to painting, yeah, he thought that uh, what made painting beautiful was system, but it's complicated when painting is representing human action, because then that brings in a moral dimension, which you don't have in nature, not in the same way. So when a painting represents human action, then there are going to be other aspects of what makes it beautiful as well. Uh-huh. Could you could you say a bit more about um, the different ways in which the moral aspects enter into, you know, appreciation of of natural beauty and appreciation of human made beauty? Yeah. So, what makes nature beautiful doesn't really have anything to do with representing human action. Uh, Understanding the beauty of nature can be inspiring in lots of ways. And we can talk about that uh, when, we, when we talk more about the morals. But he doesn't think that there's some way in which the beauty of an ecosystem somehow represents anything human. And there's some art that is also non-representational. So I don't think he would say music needs to represent virtue in any kind of significant way. It represents, it, 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 it exemplifies order, perhaps, and proportion and balance and certainly harmony. But it's not as though it has what we would think of as moral content. But with regard to painting, if painting represents human action, and he was interested in history paintings, which do represent particular events, particular actions, then its beauty is going to consist of two different aspects. On the one hand, it's going to consist of the merely formal aspects of color and shape and line, and a beautiful painting will have to be harmonious in those purely formal respects. But a painting that represents human action if it's going to be beautiful, also has to represent human action in a way that captures what virtue means to us. That doesn't necessarily mean only representing virtuous action, but it means representing action such that virtue is good for a person and vice is bad for a person because he thought that was the truth about virtue and vice. So it also has to represent properly the way virtue and vice actually figure in human life. So there are the formal aspects which it shares maybe with nature, maybe with music, but then there are also the moral aspects specific to its particular representation of human action. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, so you mentioned at the very beginning, um, you know, that he was a, you know, an angry person and unhappy and, and, um, negative. Um, and, um, I just wanted to explore that a little bit, his, um, the extent to which this was in a way a prophylactic or a sort of a self um, self-therapeutic uh, philosophy in order to, you know, because because he noticed um, his own native um, dislike of people, <laughs> I guess. I mean, I'm, j- I'm taking this from your book, so please, please be more specific. Um, uh, noticing this and then, of course, condemning it as, you know, I shouldn't feel this way. I should love all of humankind and I don't. Um, um, could you could you say explore a bit more about, you know, his own sort of perceived shortcomings in terms of how how he should feel about being virtuous 
um, and how that gets, you know, I guess, um, you know, uh, developed, I suppose, in in his in his concept of beauty. Yeah, uh, let me preface that by talking about the difference between his private diaries, his private notebooks, his Askamata, and what he actually published. This is one of the really interesting things about Shaftesbury, I think, or at least it interested me. So he kept these, these exercises, these, these notebooks, which are called Askamata, um, these exercises, and there, and they weren't meant for publication. They were meant for his own self-work. And they include a great deal of self-loathing and expression of how difficult he finds it to be with other people and chafing at the role that he feels he has to adopt. And it's very passionate and uh, overwrought at times. It also has a great deal of stoicism in it. So almost every page of his uh, notebooks, he says something about Stoic philosophers, and he was very much trying to use Stoicism. He was trying to become a Stoic to deal with this issue, and he thought that was what he should be doing. And so there's a great deal of Stoicism that comes out as he's trying to deal with the situation. In his published work, you don't find that at all. Uh, you find some stoicism, and there are some people who think that he has all these clues and that if you know where to look, you see a lot more stoicism than initially appears. And I, I think there is something to that. But at least if you're reading it without looking for it and not knowing that it's there, you're not going to see much stoicism. And an even greater difference is just the style. He His persona in the published works is not at all overwrought. It's very bemused by things. It's kind of distant. It's uh, serene. And he thought that's the way he should write. That's how your published writing should be. And while he was definitely working on himself, he believed, I believe, that his work should be helping other people as well. And he didn't think that that kind of overwrought writing was good for helping other people. He thought a text that was more pleasant to read, more polite and more entertaining and wise was the way to reach people. He thought that was that was the kind of writing that, that had to be done. And my guess is in his public life, he also was very polite. And I don't think in his public life he would have presented as the kind of person that you would expect if you read his notebooks. I think in his public life, uh, he was he was uh, had wonderful manners and um, for the most part, uh, especially as he got older. Um, so anyway, that was a preface to your question, to answering your question. But now I can't recall what the question was <laughs> exactly. Um, well, it was just, you know, the 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 way in which his um, kind of working on himself, you know, how his how his philosophy of beauty was a, an outgrowth of that in a way. He thought that was a way that he could bring his emotions into line with his beliefs about what was true about the world and true about virtue and bringing to mind the beauty of things, uh, the beauty of nature, also the beauty of art was a way of fashioning his emotions, making his inner self something more in line with what his rational assessment of what virtue and the way of the world really did suggest. Um, and the beauty of nature was a big part of it, but beauty of art as well. But in addition, his notion of beauty is as much a third, a first personal 
concept as it is a third personal concept. So when he's talking about beauty, he often is discussing our assessments of the beauty of other things. But more importantly, he thinks that when he's talking about beauty, he is taking the perspective of an artist who's trying to create something beautiful, not because he thought he was speaking to artists, although he did want to speak to artists, especially in his later works, but he thought we should view our own lives as a work of art. We should view our own selves as something like a work of art. And just as a beautiful physical work of art is entirely harmonious, so too, to make ourselves into something that has beauty, we need to make ourselves into something harmonious. And there are two aspects to that harmony. There's the internal aspect of bringing yourself into harmony with all of your parts. And then there's the external aspect, which is bringing yourself into harmony with the system of which you're part. And the system of which you are a part is the human species. And it's it's not so dissimilar to book four of Plato's Republic. So Plato's notion of the just soul, of the just soul, of course, is one whose parts all work together in harmony or all a system. They all do their job. And that is really very similar to what Shaftesbury thought virtue was. And it's supposed to line up perfectly with this notion of beauty because beauty is harmony. Beauty is all the pieces working together. So his concept of beauty certainly is supposed to explain third personal evaluations, but more importantly, it's supposed to inspire someone to try to make of themselves something beautiful, which means making of yourself something both internally harmonious and in harmony with the system of human nature. Uh, so that's the way his concept of beauty ends up being something like self-help. And uh, Aaron Garrett has work about how much of the philosophy of the 17th century was what we might think of as self-help. And I think Shaftesbury fits perfectly into that, as, as Aaron Garrett himself uh, points out really wonderfully. He really was trying to work on himself and also to produce a book that would help people become beautiful souls because it would make their lives better. And in this, again, not so dissimilar to Plato in The Republic, something uh, very similar, at least to where you end up at the end of book four of Plato's Republic. Right. So um, we haven't we, I, one of the one of the things you mentioned uh in in the book, I mean, you you, you mentioned earlier in, in our conversation how his family was very much involved with uh, was it South Carolina? Um, well, it was just the Carolinas. The Carolinas, uh, right, so, right, so, right, right, so, yeah. right. Which, which you know, I mean, you know, you know, ground zero for slavery, right? Um, right. And and also, you mentioned uh, in the book, we, although not not just now, um, his particular attitudes towards towards women. Mm -hmm. um, it, to to what extent uh, is this sort of self help? You know, being in harmo harmony, not just the internal bits, but also with one's external environment. Um, to to what extent? Is he still very much a creature of his time where uh, there's a certain amount of uh, expectation that uh, non-white, non-males should, uh, you know, to, to be the virtuous exemplars of their kinds um, should, uh, you know, obey or, or follow certain strictures uh, of their behavior, um, that are, you know, today, obviously we see these as, as, you know, very anachronistic and, and in fact, immoral. Right. Um, right. uh, yeah. you know, how did, did, did you see in his, in his work, I mean, is there any struggle with this or is he just like, you know, of course, you know, women and, and people of color and everything should be, uh, should should act in a in a subordinate way. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I do not think Shaftesbury's is defensible in these regards that you're speaking of. So let me just start by saying it is not my intention to uh, defend Shaftesbury uh, on these matters. I think what you're pointing out, his views on women and uh, on race are of a time in the worst sense. Uh, that doesn't, I don't mean that that excuses what he said, but uh, he certainly, I don't think, was ahead of his time. I will say with that uh, in place, he's worse on women, I think, than he is on other races. Uh, with regard to slavery in uh, Carolina, certainly that was going on. Uh, and John Locke and his grandfather, the first Earl, did speak to that. And there's various scholarly works explaining the ways they viewed slavery. And none of them, on none of them did Locke and his grandfather come out smelling like roses. They, they don't come out well at all. Uh, Shaftesbury himself, the third Earl, R. Anthony Ashley Cooper, was involved when he was in his 20s with Carolina. And I haven't seen anything in anything I've ever read to suggest he was opposed to African slavery. So, but I haven't ever seen him defended either. So I don't think we give him a pass on that, but he didn't actively uh, support it or condemn it. What he did condemn was slavery of Native Americans, which was very common or was becoming common. And he thought that was atrocious. And he wrote a very long and incredibly angry letter to the leaders, to the governor in Carolina, just excoriating him for being involved in the slavery of Native Americans. What, why um, is that? Why did he make that distinction? Or how did he make that distinction? Well, he doesn't make a distinction. As I say, it's not as though he's saying this in the context of approving of African slavery. He doesn't. He doesn't say anything. I haven't seen him say anything about African slavery one way or another. He does have characters in his book who are Africans. Well, one Ethiopian who is just one of the characters in his book who has as much uh, rationality and sensibility as any other character in his book. Uh, but it's not as though he contrasts Native American slavery with African slavery. He just doesn't say anything. As far as I know, I'd be happy to be uh, shown something about this. He just doesn't talk about it. But he, he did think it was just a terrible thing to do to the Native Americans. Right. Um, so I'm, I guess I'm asking, why did he think it was so terrible? Uh, for the reasons we would think, which is it violated their freedom. He was very passionate about liberty. This, he thought, was what the Whig revolution was all about and that humans deserved liberty and the kinds of things you would probably expect someone to say that it treated them with, you know, in, in the worst possible way. And they were human beings and they deserve to be treated better. So the kinds of things you would expect someone opposed to slavery to say. Um, that said, it's one letter he wrote in his 20s. And I can't say that he did much more about it. So that's that's all at least I know of with regard to that. With regard to women, it's worse in that he does actually identify virtue and strength and order and harmony with the masculine. And he does think, and these are generally offhand comments, it's not as though he goes into great depth on it, but he does, in his offhand way, associate the feminine with disorder and confusion and um, lack of clarity uh, in a kind of stereotypical way that doesn't rise above 1700 Europe at all. Um, so I think that is, that is definitely part of his view. Uh, another aspect that interested me is that he does also say a number of anti-Semitic things. Uh, throughout his text. There are anti-Semitic comments, 
But when you look into it, again, I, I don't mean to defend him on this, but when you look into it, he actually seems to be using ancient Israelites as a stalking horse to criticize early Christianity. In this, he's almost like Nietzsche in that when he's criticizing uh, Jews, it's more by way of criticizing something about Christianity, or at least there's part of that. Uh, but yeah, these parts of his text cannot be denied. They're there. Hmm. Um, okay, so I mean, we're we're getting close to the end here. So I just wanted to, you know, as a as a final sort of substantive question about Shaftesbury, what what would you think? I mean, given you know all these, um, uh, you know, man of his time sorts of attitudes, and yet he was also responding and and seems more more contemporary in other ways. What what would you say would be his? Um, his his greatest contribution, I suppose, to um, to us as you know the way we approach nature and the nature of beauty today. I mean, what is what is it you talked or you know at the very beginning about you know these little bits that kind of pop out, um, and we've gone through a lot of the you know a lot of details about that, but um, you know g- given the more the more complex. Um, picture that that you've just given us, you know, what would you say would be his his lasting contribution? Yeah, ways in which just from a the field of philosophy that I think he made very significant contributions involve a number of different areas. So, with regard to moral philosophy, his most lasting contribution, I think clearly was the development of the moral sense and moral sentimentalism. The moral sense, moral sentimentalist view of Hutchison and Hume and Smith comes right out of Shaftesbury. Uh, Shaftesbury is a very clear antecedent to all those. Uh, Smith didn't talk about him that much, but Hutchison and Hume were incredibly influenced by Shaftesbury. He's the most significant developer, uh, early developer of moral sentimentalism, the moral sense school. Another huge uh, contribution is he's one of the first, I don't think it's possible ever to find the first of anything, but he's one of the first writing in English to develop an aesthetic theory. And I think in some ways he's the initiator of aesthetic theory. And at least writing in English. A third contribution that I think is incredibly important, although nowadays probably isn't as salient, is his criticism of certain ways of reading the Bible, his criticism of miracles, his plea for rationality in religion. I think he was uh, decades, maybe a century ahead of his time in his view of how we should read the Bible and his criticisms of certain kinds of religion based on uncritical acceptance of what's in the Bible. And then, of course, his view of nature, I think, is really uh, seminal. But with regard to maybe circling back to what you were asking about how he speaks to us today in a kind of personal way, um, in his time, he was criticized in very scathing terms by some of his contemporaries for making beauty out to be so important. And the criticism that people like Barclay and Mandeville and Astell raised is that's easy if you're rich. If, if you're a rich lord, then sure, caring about beauty makes a lot of sense. But if you're a normal person, then you're going to care about all these other things. And beauty is not that important. And in fact, what they thought is Shaftesbury uh, was developing a philosophy that was purely a reflection of somebody who was so rich, he didn't have to worry about anything and could just have his head in the clouds and be concerned with beauty. And that, that, that makes for good copy. I mean, you can, you, can, you can make some pretty good cracks about this. And, and Mandeville and Barclay, they're very funny 
and it's 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 fun to read and it sounds really like oh they got him they they got him and i like to read that as much as the next person but i think shaftesbury himself actually answers that charge and to my mind he answers it convincingly so he discusses what he calls a mechanic uh, uh we would say you know a, a worker and he says the, the lowly mechanic uh, who the rich man goes to and asks to make something, even that mechanic will refuse to make anything if he doesn't think it is good craftsmanship, uh, which is basically making something that's beautiful because something that is good craftsmanship is going to fit together, is going to be beautiful. And if the rich person says, you know, I'll pay you more for it, the craftsman will say, that's not the way I do it. I'm not going to make that. That's that's just not right. And his point is that everybody cares about this sort of thing. Now, maybe they don't care about history paintings. Maybe they don't care about the wilds, but people care about what matters to them being beautiful, where that means being ordered, being done the right way. Uh, and friendship is another example of this. And Shaftesbury thought, Sure, it's harder if you're poor. That, that might be the case. But it's just wrong to say that humans don't care about this sort of thing. And it's wrong to say that your life won't be better if you don't commit yourself to trying to make of yourself something beautiful. And if you don't bring into your life this concern for order and harmony in the things that you make. So I, Mandeville and Barclay can still make their cracks. And, you know, I can sometimes feel that there is truth to it. But I think Shaftesbury's focus on how in every life, beauty, when you think of it in terms of the order and harmony of something that you make, of uh, something that you see in nature, can enhance your life, uh, speaks to us still. Okay. Well, um, we're we're... We're out of time, so maybe to wrap up, you can tell us a little about um, what's on the horizon for you. I mean, a book is done. Now, what's now? What's what are you working on? Well, with regard to moving on in connection with this book, one thing that really interests me is how Shaftesbury's love of nature seems so similar to what so many of us today, I think, reson resonates so much with us today. And yet Shaftesbury's love of nature is entirely theistic. It's entirely built on the idea that nature is an artifact. And yet when we, I think, respond in what seems to be a very similar way, we at least lots of us, don't have that thought at all. We think it's the result of evolution. We think it's the result of mindless forces and uh, not the result of one ordering mind. And so something I'm really interested in is how those two things connect. So it seems to me there are three possibilities. One possibility is Shaftesbury was wrong. When we respond to nature, we're not responding to the order of a mind. We're responding to something that doesn't have anything to do with mind necessarily. Mind isn't involved there. Another possibility is that we're wrong and that we actually do, despite ourselves, think there's some order here that comes from a mind. But then the third possibility is actually we're different. Uh, it might seem as though we're responding to nature in the same way Shaftesbury was, but actually we're responding in a different way. And I don't know which one of those three things is right, but I am interested in trying to get at that. Um, so that's, that's one of the next things I'd like to figure out is uh, what happens when we have the same response to nature that Shaftesbury did but when Shaftesbury explains it as coming from mind and we explain it as coming from the mindless Darwinian forces, uh, does anything change? Should anything change? Um, and that's, that's one of the projects I want to work on next. Well, that's a great set of questions. Um, and I, I look forward to, to seeing the results of that. Um, 
we're out of time at this point, but um, I wanted to thank you very much for taking the time to talk about your book with us. It's been a great pleasure. Great. Well, thanks very much, Carrie. Uh, this was a real joy. Okay. Thank you again. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Michael Gill, professor of philosophy at the University of Edinburgh. We've been talking about his new book, A Philosophy of Beauty, Shaftesbury on Nature, Virtue, and Art, which is just out from Princeton University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening. <laughs>